the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight today, you who are our rock and our redeemer. Uh, we thank you for gathering us here around your word. We ask you to, to send your Holy Spirit down to us uh, as your Holy Spirit was sent down at Jesus' baptism. Send your Holy Spirit down to us to strengthen us in our faith and to build us up in our confidence about your love for us and uh, to build us up in our motivation to live for you and serve you in joy in this world. Bless our sermon time today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, I would like to introduce you to my friend, Jesus. You want to know what is great about my friend Jesus? Your favorite thing about him is that he is simply one option among many. He's not uh, competitive. He's not jealous. He's not going to try to beat out all the other gods out there to win your worship. Actually, here's what I like about my friend Jesus. He doesn't even mind if you worship him or not. Because he knows that at the end of the day, all the world's religions are pretty much the same. Right? They all want you to be a better person and try to do good things and leave the world better than you found it. And my friend Jesus knows that you can do this if you're following him or if you're following Buddha or if you're following Allah or anybody. In fact, even if your religion consists of just meditating and trying to be one with the universe, my friend Jesus is cool with that too. Because he knows and he's good with the fact that he is just one option among many. What do you guys think of a, a Jesus like that? If Jesus is just one option among many, to be fair, I think there are some pretty compelling things about a Jesus like that. For one, he is like the walking definition of tolerance and acceptance, which are things that are loved and valued in our culture today. Uh, a Jesus like that is never going to make you disagree with somebody else and say that their religion is wrong and your religion is right. A Jesus like that is never going to cause you to worry about the eternal future of people who don't share the faith that you have. Because um, they're going to be fine if Jesus is just one option among many. So there are some compelling things about the one option among many Jesus. But there is one problem with the just one option among many Jesus. And that problem is that he doesn't exist. It's not the real Jesus. It's not even close to the real Jesus. It's just the next in a long line of counterfeit Jesuses that are very popular today. So, as we said at the beginning of the service today, we're starting a new sermon series called In Search of the Real Jesus. And every week of this series, I'm going to do exactly what I just did. I'm going to introduce you to a counterfeit version of Jesus that maybe sounds compelling for some significant reasons at first, but as we dig deeper each week, we're going to find out that the real Jesus is so much better. So I think you could think of our sermon series like this. Like here's a metaphor to, to wrap our minds around it. Has anybody ever made brownies from a box? It's not complicated, right? I mean, most of the dry ingredients are in there. They're all pre-mixed together for you. Maybe you sometimes have to add an egg or some oil or some milk. But, like, you mix it up, you put it in the pan, pop it in the oven, 350 degrees for 30 minutes, and you've got some delicious brownies. But, here is the thing with recipes, and especially with baking recipes, 
is that you have to follow the instructions pretty much exactly or you're going to end up with a whole different final product. What would happen if I decided to throw a handful of chocolate chips into these brownies? It would probably still be good. What if I threw in a handful of potato chips? Maybe it would be kind of weird. Um, what if I decided to just add a couple teaspoons of salt? What if I decided to add an extra cup of milk? What if I decided to skip the egg? What if I cooked it at 450 degrees instead of 350 degrees? What if I cooked it for 10 minutes instead of 30 minutes? These might seem like pretty small changes, but in every single one of these cases, you're going to end up with a totally different type of brownie, and some of those types of brownies are not going to be very appetizing. They might be totally inedible. Um, so I know this from experience, actually, not just about cooking, but specifically about baking is that when you are baking, there's not a lot of wiggle room. You've got to follow the recipe. And it's the same way with Jesus. So picture the Bible, if you will, as God's big recipe book. And in the Bible, God gives us a very clear, detailed, exact explanation. This is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus came to do. Very clear, very specific. But we all have a sinful nature that likes to improvise. And so we think that we know better. And we're tempted to maybe add some things or subtract some things and make Jesus the way that we're going to want him. And, and then our assumption is that the end result is still going to taste good. But in reality, if we change what the Bible says about Jesus, we are at risk of losing the real Jesus altogether. So as we go through this series, in search of the real Jesus, our goal is to follow the recipe, to let God's word be our guide. And as we do that, we're going to see Jesus not maybe as our culture wants to see him and not maybe as our own sinful heart wants to see him, but we are going to see him as he really is. And in the end, that is going to be a very, very good thing. Okay, so we've laid the landscape for the series. Now let's circle back to our our first counterfeit Jesus. And uh, let's talk about the just one option among many, Jesus. Where do you start with this? Maybe let's start where our first reading started, Mark chapter 1. And maybe let's talk a little bit about Jesus' baptism. Perhaps you remember the events surrounding Jesus' baptism, that uh, God had sent a special prophet named John to preach in the wilderness and to proclaim a washing of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, which was an early form of what we would now call baptism. John the Baptist is baptizing people, and one day Jesus shows up in the line to get baptized, and on that day, something very unusual happens. We read, just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. What's happening here? What's happening at Jesus' baptism? What's happening is that God is being eminently clear, isn't he? Nobody else in the baptism line had the Father's voice speaking from heaven saying, This is my son. 
Nobody else in the baptism line had the Holy Spirit descend from heaven and land on them in the form of a dove. God is making it clear. There can be no doubt about it. Jesus is special. Very special. In fact, if you go to John's Gospel, uh, in the early verses, John uses a very interesting word to talk about Jesus. Uh, The way that you translate that word is that Jesus is fully unique. Jesus is one of a kind. He is the only one sent down from heaven to be the savior of this world. And yet, at Jesus' time, just like today, there were all kinds of people trying to make him into something different. So maybe take a little mental fast-forward through Jesus' ministry and think of some of the things that were going to happen after his baptism. One of those things was the feeding of the 5,000. Do you remember that day where Jesus took one kid's lunchbox and fed, you know, 5,000 men, maybe 10,000, including women and children, and he just kept handing out the bread and the fish, and he kept on going, kept on going. Amazing miracle. Uh, but after the feeding of the 5,000, we are told that Jesus had to physically escape from these crowds of people who were chasing him because they were trying to make him king by force. And they wanted Jesus to be a king who would do miracles, and he would, he would solve their earthly problems. They wanted him to be a a bread king. But Jesus rejected that idea. In John chapter 6, Jesus rejects that idea, and then we're told that he lost a lot of followers because of this. When he said he was not going to be a permanent source of miracles, he lost a lot of followers. But Jesus' goal was not necessarily followers. His goal was not necessarily miracles. His goal was to suffer and die on the cross for the sins of the world. Jesus refused to let people redefine him. And his Father in heaven was pleased. Fast forward a few months later. Maybe you remember uh, when Jesus is getting ready to go down to Jerusalem for the Passover festival where he would be arrested and crucified and would die. And remember when he told his disciples that it was going to happen and Peter tried to stop him. Peter said, no, no, Lord, this will never happen to you. Jesus, you're not going to die. We'll protect you, Jesus. We've got your back. And then Jesus said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, because you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. You're like, wow, why did Jesus respond so strongly? But it's because Peter was being tempted by Satan to try to get Jesus again to redefine himself. Peter and the other disciples at various times were trying to define Jesus as, again, an earthly savior, and particularly like a military messiah, a a political leader. And Jesus wasn't here to do that. So he rejected that idea too. Jesus was here and he knew why he was here, to suffer and die on the cross for the sins of the world. And so he resisted this attempt to redefine him. And once again, his Father in heaven was pleased. Now, Fast forward a few more weeks, and you reach today's sermon text. I read those verses from John 14. Where those verses come from is from the Last Supper. So it's the night before Jesus' death. It's his Last Supper with his disciples. And at that supper, Jesus is telling his disciples some disturbing stuff. He's telling them, I'm going to die. One of you is going to betray me. Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. By the next night, Jesus would be dead. 
as the disciples are trying to process this, they're deeply shocked and troubled. What are you talking about, Jesus? And so now is where Jesus brings in these words from John 14. He tells his disciples, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. And we're reading this and we're like, yep, he's preparing a place in heaven. We know what he's talking about. But Jesus' disciples were still a little confused. Um, They didn't quite get it yet. So Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't even know where you're going. How are we supposed to know the way? And Jesus says, all right, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Doesn't get any clearer than that, does it? In Jesus' own words, he is clearly not just one option among many. He is the option. He is the way to eternal life with God in heaven. So Jesus says that about himself the night before he dies, but then he doesn't just say it with his words, he also backs it up with his actions. Because do you remember what happened after the Last Supper? Jesus went out to a place called the Garden of Gethsemane. And there he fell down on the ground and he was overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, the Bible says, and he began to struggle with his Father in heaven in prayer. And the Bible records that his sweat was like drops of blood falling down to the ground. That's how intense his stress and anxiety was as he was praying. And what was he praying about? He was saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup be taken from me. Father, if there is any way for all these people to get to heaven, besides through my crucifixion and suffering and death and hell, If there's any other way, Father, let's just do it that way instead. And yet not my will, but your will be done. Now guess what? If Jesus had been just one option among many, this would have been a great time for God the Father to step in and say, okay, Jesus, I I can tell you're overwhelmed. It's okay. Jesus, all religions in the world are pretty much the same. They're all different paths that are going to lead you to the same place. And so, Jesus, you don't have to do this if you don't want to. It's going to be okay. You don't have to be so extreme. You don't have to die on the cross. Would have been the perfect time. But God the Father didn't step in and say that. Because there wasn't going to be any other way for all these people to get to heaven. Human sin could only be atoned for by a perfect substitute giving his life in our place. Human death could only be defeated by a Savior who's going to go through death ahead of us and come out the other side victorious. Our consequence of hell for our sins can only be removed by a Savior who's going to suffer that hell for us. So, in the Garden of Gethsemane, one more time, Jesus refuses to be redefined. He doesn't even let his own stress and anxiety redefine him. Instead, he commits again to his mission the next day of dying on a cross and suffering hell for all the sins of all the people in the world. And once again, his Father in heaven is pleased. So thank God that Jesus was willing to commit to his mission 
Because he's the way. And for us, there could be no other way to eternal life. Some of you know this story because I've told it to you before. If you ever took Bible basics class, you probably are familiar with this story, but I'll share it anyway. When I was in fifth grade, I came home from school with a big question. It was a question for my dad. And here was my question. I said, Dad, how do we know that Christianity is the right religion? See, I had learned in social studies class, I think, that there were 2,000 religions in the world. And one in 2,000 doesn't seem like very good odds, uh, particularly if eternity is on the line. So I wanted to be sure. I wanted to be really sure that I had the right religion. And so I asked my dad, how do we know? There's so many religions in the world. How do we know that Christianity is the right one? It's a one in 2,000 chance. You know what my dad said? He said, there's not 2,000 religions in the world. There are only two. There's a religion, there's a kind of religion, where you have to do a whole bunch of good things, and the pressure is on you to be good enough for God so that he will finally accept you. Or, there's a religion where God sent his son, and he did all the good things in your place. This is all the rest of them. This one's Christianity. Now, since that conversation in fifth grade, you know, I've decided to be a pastor. I've gone through years and years of religious studies, and, and guess what I've found is that my dad was right. My dad was right. Yes, to a degree, every religion in the world does have some of the same basic things in common. They all want you to love each other and be a good person and try to leave the world better than you found it. But all the religions made up by people, because this is how we think, this is what we come up with, is that our way to God depends on how good of a job we do at these things. How good of a person am I? How good of a state am I leaving the world in? My relationship with God depends on how good of a job do I do. That's the way we think, and that's the way just about every religion in the world works. There's always a list of rules you have to follow to make yourself right with God. But Christianity is different. Christianity is special. It is the only religion in the world where you don't have to earn God's favor. Instead, God's favor is given to you as a free gift because of the completed, perfect life and death of Jesus in your place. And it has to be this way. If we're going to get to heaven, it has to be this way because as we've said, all of us have a sinful nature inside and that sinful nature even corrupts our best good works. We know it. We would say it, none of us is perfect. And so the only way we can attain perfection is if it is going to be given to us from the outside for free. In the end, the Christian religion is the only one that works. I'll say it one more time for the people in the back. In the end, the Christian religion is the only one that works. Now, do you recognize how offensive that sounds? It feels offensive to me just coming out of my mouth to say all these religions in the world, Christianity is the only one that works. How could I be so arrogant to say my religion is better than everybody else's religion? Right? How could I be so arrogant as to insist that Jesus is the only way you could get to heaven? I know how offensive that sounds coming out of my own mouth. And yet, at the same time, is it really offensive to point people to a solution simply because it works? 
I keep using illustrations and asking you to imagine things. So this is the last one. Stay with me on this. Can you really imagine this? Uh, put yourself into this situation. Imagine that every person in the world is swimming in a great giant barrel full of water. Uh, the barrel is so big, the bottom is so deep, no one can touch the bottom. And if you get to the sides, the sides are so tall and so slick, there's no way you can possibly climb out. All of humanity is swimming in this barrel, swimming and swimming and getting more and more tired. Inevitably, we know what's going to happen to every one of us is we're going to run out of strength and sink and die. It's a pretty grim scenario that I'm asking you to imagine. But now imagine one more thing. We're all treading water desperately in this barrel, and suddenly a life preserver lands in the water with a splash attached to a rope, and there is somebody up on top that is ready to start pulling people out. If you can imagine that, now here's my question. If you're in the water, is it offensive and is it intolerant for you to, to tell the people around you to grab onto the rope? You're not insulting their swimming. Maybe they're a better swimmer than you. You're not telling them that they're a foolish person. Maybe they're a smarter person than you. You're not claiming to be better than them. You're simply pointing out as urgently as possible, look guys, a rope, grab it. And this is all that Christians are saying about Jesus. This is what we should be saying about Jesus. Look, a way to heaven that you don't have to clear yourself because it's already been cleared by the Son of God for you. Look, a source of truth that you can actually count on. Unlike all the other half-truths in the world that are swirling around and you never know who or what to believe. Look, a source of life that is not based on high hopes or good vibes, but it is based on an actual person who died and then rose to give us proof that one day, through faith in him, we too will rise to eternal life in heaven. It's not offensive to point people to a solution that works. And Jesus, the way, the truth, the life, he is the solution that our world so desperately needs. Now, throughout the course of this sermon, I think we've thrown some shade on Jesus' disciples. And we do that because the Gospels throw some shade at Jesus' disciples because they just didn't get it a lot of the time along the way. But in the end, by God's grace, they did get it. Peter and Thomas and the other disciples, they did get it. And after Jesus ascended into heaven, his disciples were going around spreading the good news of what he had done, the way, the truth, and the life, and they got arrested. If you read the book of Acts, particularly there's a time when Peter and John got arrested, and they got arrested by the same Jewish leaders that had killed Jesus. And those Jewish leaders told them, stop preaching about Jesus. And they said, we can't. Why? Salvation is found in no one else, Peter said. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Jesus is the way. He is the only way. And Peter and the disciples were so sure of this that in the end, they were willing to die for it. As for you, brothers and sisters, living in Atlanta in 2024, you get the blessing of living for it. We get to live for it. We get to share it. We get to go into a world full of people who are, quite frankly, just overwhelmed by the amount of religious options that are out there. What are you supposed to do? 
And we get to go out into that world with the good news that it really is very simple. God sent us a Savior to do it for us. His name is Jesus. He did all the work of salvation with his perfect life. He died on the cross for all of our sins so that now heaven can be available to us as a free gift. And he's ascended into heaven, but he's still here through his word, through his sacraments, working among us, working with us, doing whatever it takes to lead us home. Brothers and sisters, may God give you confidence as you embrace that real Jesus for yourself and as you share that real Jesus with your world. Amen. And now the peace that passes all understanding will guard and keep your hearts and your minds through faith in Christ Jesus, your Savior. Amen.